imagine this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, has just left the wilderness where he'd been for 40 days, tempted by the devil. He's returning to the region of Galilee and he's teaching regularly in the synagogues along the way. Many are beginning to praise his teachings. And then one day, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue in his boyhood home of Nazareth. Once he's there in the synagogue, this young rabbi, Jesus, goes up to the attendant and they hand him a scroll in which he is to read the scriptures from. It's the scroll of Isaiah. And he found the place where this was written and he began to read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. At that very moment, everyone in the synagogue were locked on the eyes of Jesus. And from his seat in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, he said this, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church family in this place. I pray that we would not take it for granted today, the gift that it is to, to come together, to, to sing and to pray and to celebrate, to open up the scripture and to find more of who you are and what you long to say to us, God. And so I pray this morning that each one of us as individuals would set before you whatever it is that might keep us from hearing from you and that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to receive what you have for us. And God, I pray that for us as a church family as a whole as well, that we would receive what it is you have for us as a community. And so God, we, we pray these things because we believe that you are already here, you are already moving, you are already active in our lives, and you long to continually be a part of everything that we do. I pray for me, Lord, that you would give me your words to speak, that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you and from you, God, that we would continue to make much of you and your son Jesus here this morning. To you be all of the glory. Amen. Well, good morning, Journey. My name's Chris, and I am really glad that you joined us today. We're currently in a series that we're calling The Way of Jesus, Radical Love in Action. And we're doing two things. I mean, we're doing a lot of things with this series, but, but two things in particular that we're doing is one, we're following the trajectory of the life of Jesus and we're learning what it means to become like him. And then two, what we're doing is we're sharing with you the, the heart and mission of Journey Church as we strive to lead people to radical love and action like Jesus. We hope that over this series, you will, one, fall more in love with Jesus, and two, you will learn what we long to be as a church community and enter into that with us. So today, as we look at the life of Jesus, we need to have a couple things in mind in order to enter the, the larger narrative of God's story. God's chosen people are the, the people of Israel. You know them today as the Jewish people, and so from the very beginning, as God promised Abraham, he said he'd have a big old family. Right? He says it's going to be really, really big. And that, that 
family became God's chosen people and they were chosen and blessed in order that they would be a blessing. Now they didn't always do a great job with that so you fast forward a bit in the narrative when we find the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are enslaved and they're longing for God to deliver them. Eventually, they're set free from the oppressors of Egypt and they find themselves in the wilderness. After their 40 years in the wilderness, God delivers them to what they called the promised land. So in our scripture today, we find ourselves walking with Jesus in the story within the story. In Luke's gospel account that we're looking at, Jesus has just emerged from spending 40 days in the wilderness. And if the story of Jesus is to bring to light what God has been doing all along, where do you think Jesus might end up next? Maybe in the promised land. Maybe Jesus has come to reclaim it. Maybe Jesus has come to give it a new name. Maybe he'll call it the kingdom of God and maybe it will include more people than you think. So let's enter into the story once again, starting in verse 14 of Luke chapter four. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. And so just a quick aside for the sake of the greater narrative, this is Luke's account, right? This is Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, he puts this interaction of Jesus and Nazareth after a whole bunch of parables about the kingdom of God, right? So again, the the kingdom of God is Jesus' language for the promised land. So there's two different authors writing this, but it's within the same great narrative that they position these stories. And so the story goes on now in verse 17. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And and as best as we can to imagine what's happening in this place, this is no tiny scroll, okay? Like it's a big scroll, many, many feet long. So I don't know, maybe they hold it together or however they do that because then he has to unroll it and find the place. Like, Like you have to imagine them getting this giant scroll. It's not as nice as the iPad. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. And just imagine Jesus doing that, right? Like looking for the place, that's the place he wants. He finds it and here's what's written. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Man, there's so much going on here right now. First, like, can you imagine being in the synagogue on this morning trying to make sense of this? Right? Like, do your best to be a person from Nazareth because here's Jesus, a man you saw grow up. His family is among you. 
You've known him all along and here he is telling you that the spirit is upon him and he's got some really specific goals. Right, he's bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming captives to be released. The blind will see, and he's there to set the oppressed free. Like, just pause for a moment and ask yourself what that means then for you. What does that mean to you in 2017? Because it meant something really specific to the people hearing it in Nazareth. And I think we have a tendency to separate ourselves from the deeply intertwined physical and spiritual bodies we occupy. Many, many of the very people Jesus was talking to in this moment, and then many of the very people who would later read this gospel from Luke, were living from the vantage point of being at the bottom. They were actually poor actually being ruled, physically blind, and suffering under oppression. Jesus did not just come here for the spiritual, but his kingdom of God is also a physical one. He longed to actually change something in their physical existence. And so all of this then leads us to evaluate our own participation in the kingdom of God. If this is what Jesus has been anointed to do, then what does it look like for us to partner with him in the bringing of his kingdom? How do we get around these things that Jesus is talking about? I mean, on some level, it's relatively straightforward, isn't it? It's like Gustavo Gutierrez says. He says, you care about the poor, then tell me what are their names. And so we must be with the poor and the captive the blind, and the oppressed. Because when we do this, we are also partnering with Jesus in his kingdom. And as obvious as all of this might seem, we have to continue to place ourselves inside the story to see the fullness of where Jesus is headed with all of this. The last thing that Jesus quotes from the scroll of Isaiah is that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus is quoting Isaiah in reference to the year of Jubilee. It's this every 50 year celebration known as the year of emancipation and restoration. Jesus is saying he is here for emancipation and restoration. Think about that. This little line where he says the time of the Lord's favor has come is because Jesus is announcing he's come to emancipate and restore. Which is really cool, but wait. Because there's even more. You just can't see it. It seems Jesus has intentionally omitted the end of Isaiah 61, 2. He's quoted Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 here, but he's intentionally omitted the last part of 61, 2. Here's what 61.2 reads, so you don't have to turn there. First, Jesus says, the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's where he stops. The sentence would actually continue, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. For some reason, Jesus has stopped mid-sentence when reading the scroll of Isaiah, 
and has chosen not to say this. Jesus, as we're about to find out, did not come to bring wrath against their enemies, but love and mercy for everyone, including their enemies. If you were hearing that, and you are actually, you should be shook. That should do something to you. And yet, even as Jesus speaks, their eyes are fixed on him. They're locked on him intently in this moment. And I pray that that would be true of us too, that our eyes would be locked on Jesus intently, not just in this moment, but in all moments. And so with their eyes on him, Jesus is sitting and here's what happens next. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? And you can sense the confusion in the room right now. Something about the way Jesus speaks and lives has captured their attention, right? His graciousness is like gravity pulling them in, and yet they are still not convinced that he is who he says he is. They're, they're processing all of this, so now they're asking these questions. Like, how, how can all of this happen? We saw him grow up. We saw where he came from. And then Jesus continues, Then he said this, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Like what's going on, right? I've always tried to, to just understand what Jesus meant when he said no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Like, like that, that's been something I've struggled to resonate with. And, and so it just so happens that this is my hometown and I had been gone for a while and then I came back. And I'm not saying I'm Jesus, I'm saying I'm trying to figure out what Jesus felt like and was experiencing. And so I left this place where I spent the first 30 years of my life. And I, and I went south to the wilderness, to the desert. And then I came back. And upon coming back, I realized that there was something different in me. That I had changed. And yet there were people who were meeting me for uh, the second time or rekindling old relationships. And on some level, they're like, where's the funny guy in the baseball hat? And it was the first time I ever was able to at least on some level associate with what Jesus might have been feeling to come back into a place and say, I've got something for us to chew on, to challenge us, to move us forward. I hope you don't do to me what they did to Jesus, but we'll see where this goes. Here's how he continued. He says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them. 
He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. So that does not mean as much to us as it would have meant to them. They are locked in to the words of the prophet Isaiah that Jesus quoted already. The prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. These are the heroes of their faith. And so as Jesus is telling them what he's come there to do, he shares two stories very, very intentionally. The foreigner, right, the widow, and the Syrian, Naaman, were not supposed to be one of them. They are the other. And Jesus wants to remind these Jewish people that he has also come for the outsider. Where they thought they drew a boundary, he said it extends even farther. Or maybe to make the association even more blunt and relatable to the world we live in today. Because this would have landed with a thud on the people in Nazareth. We're about to see the ethnocentrism of the Jewish people fuel their fury. That it is only their ethnicity that should have the say in this place. They are offended that someone outside of the chosen people might be invited in. There's racial tension here. And so when Jesus says he is equally for the emancipation and restoration of those they originally viewed as their enemies, anger begins to swell in them. It's as if the town of Nazareth sees Jesus as taking sides now. And they see Jesus as taking sides because this is the way they see the world. There are two sides. And we must pause and ask ourselves, how do we see the world? Through the eyes of Jesus or through the eyes of his hometown, Nazareth? And as we finish this interaction in Luke 4, I want to ask, because I keep asking myself this every time I read it, are we furious right now? Like it is, are we, are we swelling with anger too? Because the people of Nazareth are. Here's how the exchange ends. Verse 28. When they heard this, that is the two stories about the outsiders, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Man, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Got out of hand really, really fast. As soon as Jesus made it clear that the Lord's favor is for everyone, even them, as soon as Jubilee, the year of emancipation and restoration was made inclusive and not exclusive, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Huh. 
And it is, it is hard to imagine that scene. This sudden mob forming like this, turning on someone in furious and violent rage. Like this, this image, this picture should shock us. But instead, I'm guessing on some level, it even seems a little tame. We've heard it. It's just words. It's like another scene in a movie. But real life is on the line in this account. The life of Jesus, the life of those who associate with Jesus, the lives of the people of Nazareth even. There are many lives, like real life is on the line. And and to be honest with you guys, I've struggled to like figure out how to put myself in this scenario over the last few weeks. Because I've I've heard this story a lot myself and, and I just, I can't fathom This mob mentality, I can't relate to it. I can't understand what that would feel like. And so maybe maybe it's like people moving into Bozeman from out of state and us locals are ticked. Maybe it feels like that. Or maybe it's like storming across your backyard at a neighbor who's playing their music a little too loud or tossing their rocks over or maybe a dog poop here and there and we're filled with rage. Or maybe it's like staunchly denying women and children fleeing war and tragedy and destruction the opportunity to enter a country. Or maybe what seemed to resonate most with me, it's like a group of white nationalists marching with torches and shouting, you will not replace us. I feel that in your gut right now. Whatever feeling you have, that's what Nazareth must have felt like on that day as they pushed Jesus toward the cliff, possibly chanting to him, you will not replace us. We must take Jesus so seriously that we will allow him to overturn our prior conceptions of God in our own selfish hearts. Right, or for the people in Nazareth, it seems that it would require from them a particular kind of humility of heart to receive something new and shaking and disturbing from someone so familiar. But do you ever wonder what happened to the people of Nazareth who freaked out on Jesus? What became of them after that day? Like, I mean, especially after he passed right through them. Like the the moment that that happened, but also what became of them a week later or three years later, were they still prone to being part of a rage-filled mob? Was that still something that existed inside of them or did something shift in them so that they could see Jesus for who he really was? I, I hope their hearts were softened, their eyes opened, and their lives were transformed. But sadly, people have an amazing capacity to be unresponsive to the grace of God. You know what I hope didn't happen? After witnessing the gracious words and the inclusive love and the miraculous ways of Jesus, I hope they didn't go home and keep watching the same shows and go into the same restaurants and live in the same lives. I hope something was different. But the sad truth for all of us, 
is that we all encounter transcendent divine moves of God that should change us, but don't. It's crazy how we continue to deny what we don't want to see. And maybe Dorothy Day said it best when she said this. I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. Maybe that's where the challenge lies. And so as we finish our time this morning, I want to circle back to where we started. Do you remember the the larger narrative we entered into at the beginning? Right, leaving the wilderness and entering the land God has promised. As Jesus left the wilderness, it seems that the promised land rejected him. The people of Nazareth are faced with a choice. Do they want the promised land that they think they're in, that they're waiting for God to liberate? Or is the whole land the promise? They're asking, is it just for them or is it for everyone? And Jesus flips the script and he says that the whole land is promised, that this is for everyone. And when you say that, some people might try to kill you, but you also might witness a miracle. And so you work and endure and you fight. You get degrees and marriages and kids and a house and a vacation house, and it should be the promised land. But something about it isn't good enough. Too often we think We've already found the promised land. Or at least we know how to find it. Turns out that Jesus has something different in mind. Good news for the poor. Captives released. Blind people with sight. The oppressed set free in emancipation and restoration for all. Are you in? We must constantly resist the temptation to cast ourselves in the role of the ones who deserve mercy while casting those outside our tribe in the role of those who deserve vengeance. We must not lose Jesus in the pursuit of being right, of being a patriot, of being the main character in our story, of being the one drawing boundaries. We must let Jesus continue to teach us the ways of radical love. We must. Let's go ahead and set our stuff aside and just let all of this settle on us for a moment. I believe there's much to think about and reflect on. And I want to give you some space to gather with the Lord and figure out what that means for you. There might be something he's asking you to do or something he's asking you to be or something he's asking you to remember. Take a few moments with him and then I'll close this out.
she continued to sit in a posture of reflection. I want you to think about the mob that pushed Jesus to the edge of the cliff. And in that moment, we see the rejection of Jesus being foreshadowed. Because three years later, another mob comes together to crucify Jesus. Let us resist the mob mentality and let us instead receive the radical love of Jesus who would rather die on a cross than kill his enemies. The message that he came to speak, he acts out. So God, today we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that your spirit anointed him, that he walked this world and showed us how to live. And God, I pray that we would follow in his footsteps and we would be people who bring good news to the poor, release for the captive, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, that we would be people who are about emancipation and restoration and that we would join you in your work. Jesus, by the power of your spirit in us, we too can join you in bringing this kingdom to earth. And so God, I ask that we would do that boldly, courageously, humbly, just like you showed us. Move us past the, the lines of comfort that we've drawn around us into places that push us into uh, new opportunities to trust you and experience you and know you and fall in love with you again, God. And I pray that if we are not yet a part of your family, the beauty of your son Jesus and what he's come to do and what he's done and what he's still doing, I pray that you would be drawn in by that love and that you would surrender along all of us and that together we would get to serve and love our great God. To him be the glory. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.